morning, everyone. Um, so I'm losing my voice a bit, but I'm going to try to project as much as I can. But if you need me to speak louder or repeat something, just let me know, uh, and I'm happy to do that. So uh, my lecture today is titled Beyond Migrant Workers, Mexican Communities and Complexities in the United States, uh, 1986 to 2016. Um, and what I wanted to do today, what my main intention is um, in discussing Mexican communities in the U.S. post IRCA and over these past 30 years, um, is basically to do what I can to give you some information and some context um, that'll be helpful for you when um, you teach about important moments or trends in Mexican and Mexican-American history um, or Latino history, whether it's from a political angle or whether it's from a legislative and policy angle um, or cultural or literary or social. Um, I feel that uh, having a solid kind of um, knowledge of some landmark moments in Mexican and Mexican-American history over these past few decades uh, might provide some helpful scaffolding when you're coming up with uh, curriculum and lesson plans um, and ideas to talk with your students about um, this particular history. And I want to give an overview, even if it's brief, in just this one talk uh, of these past 30 years to show not only how diverse and complex Mexican origin communities are here in the United States, but how they always have been very diverse and complex. Um, even before the U.S. was the U.S., um, Mexican origin people um, have been here, and of course half of the U.S. was Mexico um, at one point. And so that history is long and deep, and I don't think our students get that you know, idea enough or that message enough. Um, in their studies. So I really want to break down, and this is why I titled this talk the way that I did, I really want to break down that association or that idea that some people um, may have in the public that when we are talking about Mexican communities, they are recent arrivals, or they are mainly immigrant, or they are mainly um, foreign-born, which is just simply not the case if we look at you know, this longer history of, of their presence here. So I want to speak to not only how Mexican origin people have been shaped by their experiences living and working here in the U.S., but how they have shaped the U.S. through their presence and their, and their lives and work here. And because in a, in a talk like this, it would be really hard to cover the entire nation, I'm going to try to focus in on the Northeast. Um, and the way that I wanted to structure um, the talk this morning is to go through some important pieces of legislation that I think are really important to um, know, reiterate the significance of IRCA, but also then NAFTA, um, the North American Free Trade Agreement in 1994, um, talk about the militarization of the border in the late uh, 20th century, what the U.S. Um, built up to doing in terms of militarizing the U.S.-Mexico borderline, and then um, how did communities in the United States, previously unaccustomed to having a Latino population, uh, previously unaccustomed to having a Mexican presence, how did those communities change and transform upon those late 20th century um, di diasporic movements and migrations and, and shifts in, in communities and in demographics. Um, and I want to end with uh, talking about, about a 
couple of examples of how Mexican Americans and Mexican immigrants have mobilized to make their voices heard in the political arena um, at moments where they have felt marginalized. Um, things like pushing for the DREAM Act or things like marching um, for immigrant rights um, in, in this uh, century. Those kind of moments um, and then closing out with some myths that may still be out there about Mexican origin communities and how we can talk with our students about debunking myths about Mexican people and migration, um, how to discuss with our students how to deconstruct those myths, why they exist, um, and what is the historical reality and truth behind it. So that's the plan um, for the talk today. And first, uh, what I want to put up here uh, is some terminology in case uh, not all of us are familiar with these different terms that we can use to reference, to refer to uh, people of Mexican background. So Mexican-American um, can denote people who are US-born citizens of Mexican descent, who happen to be of Mexican descent. This term can also apply to people who um, may not be US citizens, but who feel like their identity and experience here in the country has been totally bicultural, so they feel just as American as they do Mexican. Uh, for the purposes of my talk today, I'll use Mexican-American to talk about US-born citizens of Mexican descent. Um, but of course, being a term of identity, it's all up to the individual how they want to uh, identify themselves. If I say Mexican national, that means a citizen of Mexico, living in Mexico. Mexican immigrant, of course, somebody who's moving from Mexico to another place, in this case, the US. Uh, these three terms, Mexican origin, ethnic Mexican, or Mexicano, or Mexicana, any of these are umbrella terms. Um, so if you want to encapsulate and talk about both US-born and foreign-born people of Mexican background, these are some terms that scholars often use uh, interchangeably to talk about uh, immigrants and US citizens together. Uh, Chicano is a term that you may have um, already seen, been exposed to, used in your classrooms. Um, Chicano is a more politically inflected term uh, that was most popular in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, with the Chicano Civil Rights Movement of that time period, um, if you identified as Chicano, that sort of connoted a more radical political identity. Um, it connoted more ethnic pride, pride in your Mexican heritage or your Mexican roots, and uh, being proud of that difference rather than uh, trying to blend in or assimilate um, or erase that difference. And then finally, terms like Hispano and Tejano are regional terms. So if you ever come across the term Hispano, um, that's often a Mexican-American from New Mexico. Uh, that's a term used in New Mexico. Tejano is a term used in Texas um, for someone of Mexican descent in Texas. So I often give my students all of these terms and talk about the difference between Hispanic and Latino whenever I teach um, a course on Mexican-American history, immigration history, Latino history, because I feel there are so many ways to talk about this population. Um, that it's important to get the terms out there. Uh, so I wanted to kind of point out um, from a historical angle what makes the Mexican story different 
Um, I know that you guys have had a lecture already on the Puerto Rican diaspora, um, and you got to hear from Professor Sanchez Perel um, about uh, Puerto Rican communities. And one thing that makes the Mexican story different or unique is that unlike immigration from Asia or Europe or even the Caribbean, um, water is not something that plays into the migration experience for the most part, um, a large body of water. Uh, so the Mexican border with the United States, it's a contiguous border. And because of that land crossing, um, it's been relatively easier for Mexican migration to keep on happening, to keep persisting and to keep continuing. Um, and that is one reason why Mexican migration has not stopped. Um, another reason is because of the United States' historical relationship to Mexico in terms of labor. Um, and that is a, a bigger factor and one that we've seen play out um, over the 19th and 20th century, uh, and I'm going to talk about the 20th century here specifically. So historically, the pattern has been that in times when the U.S. has needed more labor, has needed to fill vacancies in particular sectors of labor like agriculture um, or the railroad industry, they have turned to their southern neighbor of Mexico. In times of economic downturn in the United States or times of economic recession, xenophobia has gone up and uh, Mexican populations have been targeted along with others and pushed out. So there's been this pattern historically of embracing Mexican origin labor and then rejecting it or pushing it away. Um, and this has happened continuously over the course uh, of the 20th century, which is the era that I specialize in, but also we can say um, for the 19th and 21st centuries as well, we are continuing to see this pattern play out. Um, so I wanted to talk about a few flashpoints just to give us some background before we get into the 1980s. Um, so if we're talking about the 20th century, one of these first flashpoints is World War I. Um, so during the World War I period, the United States instituted this guest worker program with Mexico, started bringing guest workers in from Mexico to work in our fields, to work on our railroads. Um, and the guest worker program lasted for not as long as the Bracero program, which we, all, which we all know about was in the World War II period. It didn't last as long as that, um, particularly because there was sort of an immediate nativist reaction to having these um, guest workers in our country in a, in a time of war. Um, so during the World War I period, there was this idea of the Brown Scare, um, that Mexican origin people would be subversives, that they would um, be a threat to the nation because they weren't, quote, 100% American. Um, and so the nativist impulse to push these guest workers out certainly swayed political, politicians' opinion, um, to discontinue this guest worker program. Um, so World War I was definitely this time where we saw that pulling in, but then that pushing out pretty immediately. The 1920s were a really big decade for Mexican migration, and employers were hiring um, a lot of Mexican uh, migrants to keep on working in particular sectors like agriculture and transportation. Um, but of course, at the end of the 20s, we have the stock market crash, right? Um, so with the Great Depression, again, in this time of economic downturn, uh, we see deportation, xenophobia um, really go on the rise. And from the years 1931 to 1937, cities across the United States like LA, Chicago, Detroit, 
um, cities that have really large Mexican origin populations started conducting these repatriation drives and deportation drives um, of Mexican origin people. And repatriation was voluntary. You could volunteer to go back to Mexico and have um, your transportation paid for by that you know, local government. Or if you were deported, those deportations were conducted um, via public raids on plazas, workplaces, um, you know, public spaces where immigration officials would uh, step up to people and ask them, do you have your papers on you? Do you have proof of citizenship on your person? And if you didn't at that particular time, you were rounded up, put on a train, and sent to the deep uh, interior of Mexico. So this happened over the course of several years in the 1930s, and not a lot of our students learn about that before they get to us at the college level. They never learn that the Great Depression was not only about um, bread lines and the New Deal reforms that happened afterwards, but that it was this dark time in which um, local governments, but also with the participation of the Mexican government, conducted these deportations um, of Mexican origin people because they were constructed to be the threat, the reason um, why resources were getting drained in the United States. Again, this anti-foreigner, xenophobic sentiment um, that placed blame on Mexican origin populations. Um, and the thing that my students are always so disturbed by is that 60% of those deportees were actually US citizens. They just didn't have proof of their citizenship on them at that time. Um, so one of the things that I do, you know, even in huge lecture halls is to ask my students when I talk about this to take out all your forms of identification that you have on you. Does anyone have their birth certificate right now? Does anyone have their social security card right now? Does anyone have a passport on them right now? Um, and very few of them do and they come to realize, wow, this is what it felt like um, to be vulnerable in that way, to not have that proof of national belonging. Um, and so this was a really big moment. It's a really big moment in Mexican and Mexican-American history because it really was this um, moment of disillusionment, right at the point where Mexican-Americans were starting to feel like, okay, we can get assimilated, we can get absorbed into the nation. They are pushed out in this very violent manner. Um, so the Great Depression is definitely uh, a really important landmark point in the 20th century. I know that you all um, read one of my pieces on the Bracero program of the World War II period. And even though it was originally intended to be a wartime guest worker program, it lasted, as you see here, for almost a quarter of a century. Um, again, that's an example of, you know, at the time that the US needed to fill vacancies in certain positions in our economy, um, we brought Mexican guest workers in, but again, held them at arm's length, made sure they knew they were temporary people, made sure they knew that we were not going to absorb them into our social fabric and not absorb them um, into residential life and social life in the United States. Um, and the Bracero program is fascinating and so great to teach no matter from what angle you're coming at it, um, whether it's um, literature, whether it's you know, oral histories of braceros themselves that are now being put online by the Smithsonian that are just fantastic. There's so many resources out there of memories of braceros. Um, if you work uh, in the health sciences, the medical care of braceros and how substandard and inadequate um, that care was and the substandard conditions of what 
being a Rosetto entailed, you know, backbreaking labor, inadequate health care, um, substandard housing and food, um, and, and treatment by employers. All of these things are what led civil rights activists in the Mexican-American community to say, this program needs to come to an end. It's way too hazardous. It's way too dangerous. People's lives are being put at risk all the time. But it took almost a quarter of a century for that activism to culminate in terminating this program. Um, the Bracero program was touted by the US government as the legal solution. That is the way that Mexican uh, people can migrate is through these legal channels. They can be guest workers, and then they can return home. But in the midst of the Bracero program, which was the legal solution, there was a lot of outcry about illegal immigration in the middle of the 20th century. Um, and so Operation Wetback uh, was an operation conducted by the INS in 1954 uh, to, again, you know, start those deportation drives um, to kick out three million people uh, suspected of being undocumented in this country. Um, so even at times where there are legal uh, infrastructures put into place to uh, pull in Mexican labor and to pull in Mexican migration, there is always the persistent paranoia and fear and anxiety about the undocumented figure, the undocumented Mexican, and that has continued to be an anxiety that we're still seeing to this day. That is, it's continually present, um, not only because Mexico is right there, um, but also it's really because of our historical relationship to that country and how often we have pulled in and pushed out and just continued that pattern over time. Um, so that is sort of, those are sort of the big moments that I see as really important um, before we get into talking about um, the later 20th century. And one other thing I'd like to um, just briefly touch on before I get to IRCA um, is what happens in 1965. Um, so, Mexican immigration, for all that it was talked about and for all that it was debated in US society, Mexican immigration itself as a thing, as a trend, as a phenomenon, was never limited by a quota, was never limited by a number. We never said only this many Mexicans can migrate to the United States until 1965. So really long time passed before we ever had an act that particularly restricted migration from Mexico and Latin America. Um, so the Hart Seller Act of 1965 uh, did some really significant things that changed uh, the landscape when it came to immigration. So that act limited our annual number of your run-of-the-mill visas to 300,000 per year. And any one country only got 20,000 visas max. Um, so you could only distribute 20,000 visas per year for any one country. Um, this actually, because it did not take into account that the United States had different relationships to different countries when it came to migration, when it came to labor, when it came to absorption, um, that 20,000 visas in Mexico did not go very far if in the past we had absorbed hundreds of thousands. Um, of these laboring migrants. So if the same number of visas are given to Mexico as are given to Cuba, for instance, this creates a situation in which more illegal immigration is happening because the visa cap is too low for certain um, countries like Mexico, which the US had this 
long-standing relationship of absorbing labor and absorbing migration from that place. Um, so the Heart Seller Act, for all that it tried to put off this image of, oh, you know, this is an equal distribution of opportunity for migrants to come to the United States, it actually created more of this undocumented immigration that we continue to see the ripple effects of uh, today because of these quotas um, that were put into place um, in the 60s. So that's some uh, background legislation to know about. Um, and now I'll move into um, the 80s to talk about the more recent past. Um, so the 1980s, um, most of us probably know that the 80s were declared the decade of the Hispanic um, back then. And the reason why the 80s were pronounced to be such is that um, Latinos' presence was being felt in a lot of different ways in American society. Um, not only were demographics changing, and Mexican origin people were making up the majority of all Hispanics or Latinos in the country at 72%, so they were still the vast majority of Latinos in the country. Um, but we started to see uh, Mexican Americans and Mexican immigrants moving into different parts of the country that hadn't seen um, or integrated their presence before. Um, so we started getting uh, more Mexican origin population uh, growth in places like the Pacific Northwest, or the Midwest, or the Deep South, here in the Northeast as well. Um, the 80s and the 90s are really these two decades where we see a lot changing in a very short amount of time. Um, in addition to demographic change, also politically, uh, the 1980s are the decade of the Hispanic because we were seeing that um, traction and momentum from the Chicano civil rights movement playing out in the 80s. So at the same time that African Americans were agitating for equality in spheres like education and in voting and in the justice system and in uh, desegregation of housing, Mexican Americans are doing the same thing, mostly in the Southwest, but all over the country. And the 80s are this decade in which we're seeing the culmination of all of that activist work play out in really important uh, legal cases and movements. Um, one example is in 1982, we had the case Plyer v. Doe. Um, and what Plyer v. Doe did, um, for instance, it went all the way up to the Supreme Court. It determined whether states had to educate undocumented children. Um, so that was an example of a really big case and a big victory for Mexican-American civil rights activists uh, because it was declared that, yes, uh, states did have to educate undocumented immigrant children um, under the 14th Amendment of Equal Rights and Protections. So it was big cases like this, big moments like this, that were really grabbing national attention and making it clear that people of Mexican origin in the country were standing up, fighting for uh, different forms of equality, fighting for equal treatment, um, and really making their presence known in a lot of different ways. And finally, culturally, if we just looked at um, cultural influences from Mexican and other Latino populations in the 80s, um, the 80s uh, were a decade in which the most popular ethnic food to be eating at that time was Mexican food. Um, newspapers and the media were making a really big deal about this, um, and a few years later, it was found that Americans were consuming more salsa than ketchup. It was like a really big deal, and newspapers were reporting it constantly that the culinary landscape of the country was changing, that we were starting to um, 
develop and embrace the taste of Mexican cuisine, it was no longer just isolated to those Mexican or immigrant populations who wanted it. Now all Americans wanted um, a taste of this different kind of cuisine. And when we think about music, if you're, you're paying attention to the radio or going to record stores in the 80s or going to concerts, there are these um, musicians, crossover artists, Spanish language music is um, gaining more traction in areas of the country that it wasn't before. Um, graphic art, mural art, um, cartoons, um, if we look at visual culture, it is it's becoming more saturated uh, with Mexican and Latino influences by the 80s and the 90s. Um, so in all of these different ways, um, the 80s are a really big, different decade when it comes to uh, Mexican um, lives and experiences being documented and being expressed in a lot of different different venues and in a lot of different uh, ways. The 80s are also important because of Urca. And um, that is kind of the, the time period that I want to talk about is, you know, what happens with Urca and after Urca when it comes to um, thinking about how the U.S. Uh, responded to Mexican migration and to Mexican origin people. So just to reiterate the importance of IRCA, the Immigration Reform and Control Act passed um, and, and enacted in 1986. IRCA was uh, pretty significant because it did three things. This was under the Reagan administration. Um, so IRCA, for one, made it illegal for U.S. employers to knowingly hire or recruit undocumented immigrants. And the key word there is knowingly, um, right? So employers could always um, plead ignorance. They could always claim that, oh, I just didn't think to ask about citizenship status. Um, but this act made it illegal, um, at least on paper, for employers to knowingly hire or recruit undocumented immigrants. Sanctions being put on businesses and um, that kind of thing. Uh, second, it granted amnesty to certain seasonal agricultural undocumented workers. Um, so IRPA did contain within it this continuation of a guest worker program. We continued to have an arrangement in which we were absorbing some temporary labor um, from Mexico, and so amnesty uh, was given to people under that kind of status. And finally, IRPA granted amnesty to undocumented immigrants, any undocumented immigrant, not just Mexican, any undocumented immigrant, uh, who entered the United States before 1982 and had resided in the U.S. continuously uh, since then. And the key word here is amnesty. And I think IRCA was really the moment in which, um, you know, that ripple effect about and the controversy around the term amnesty started to become a thing that we continue to see um, in U.S. society is anxiety around the term amnesty, anxiety around the idea of amnesty um, because of the kind of idea that, well, these people escaped punishment. These people uh, evaded consequences. Um, whereas uh, proponents of IRCA framed it as, these people are here anyway. We might as well absorb them into our society and into our economy um, and you know put these different measures into place. But again, this this anxiety around amnesty um, was certainly a significant trend and phenomenon that just continued thereafter. 
those of you um, familiar with Central American history know that the 80s are a big decade in the history of Central Americans as well. Um, in that decade, civil wars and civil conflicts in places like El Salvador, um, in Nicaragua, in Guatemala, um, are sending refugees from Central America into the United States as well. And in order to um, protect or provide sanctuary for those refugees, churches, schools, universities, um, communities of faith were offering sanctuary um, to Central Americans fleeing violence, fleeing that political chaos. Um, so IRCA and the sanctuary movement combined created this atmosphere in the 80s that made um, anti-immigrant activists or anti-immigrant rights activists um, really uh, virulent about, let's put some limits on this because we're giving amnesty to, you know, Three million people through IRCA. Um, we're providing sanctuary to people from Central America. How are we going to absorb all of these different populations? How can we limit it? How do we um, enforce a sense of national um, boundaries? Uh, so the 80s was characterized uh, by moments and legislation like IRCA and the sanctuary movement. But the 90s started to be more about that closing up that um, militarizing and securing um, of the border. So when we get into the Clinton administration uh, in the early 90s, um, border militarization was the chosen course of action, making it clear that we were going to secure the US-Mexico border through different um, means. And Clinton's policy in the early 90s was called prevention through deterrence. If we deter migrants from coming in all of these different ways and fashions, perhaps that'll solve this continuing problem of uh, an influx of undocumented immigration. So um, things like Operation Hold the Line in 1993 uh, and Operation Gatekeeper in 1994 these were basically initiatives in which we started building up those uh, border fences and boundaries. So high steel fences and floodlights were installed um, in different locations along the border, um, specifically the San Diego Tijuana uh, area in California and then the El Paso Ciudad Juarez border in Texas, um, started building up um, the wall, the fences, um, and, and the ways uh, of making it visibly apparent to migrants that they were not welcome to cross uh, in the same ways that they were crossing before. But all that these kind of um, uh, temporary, not temporary, um, partial, partial uh, border boundaries, what they did was simply channel migration into less visible but more dangerous pathways into the United States. Um, so critics of walls, of building more walls, of building more fences, louder fences, simply say that migrants will still keep coming. They'll just keep coming through more dangerous routes. Uh, and one of the most dangerous routes is through the Arizona-Sonora desert region. Um, and that desert region is very mountainous. It's very perilous um, for thousands of people who try to cross it all the time because it can get up to 130 degrees during the day and get below freezing at night. And thousands of people um, since the 90s have died trying to cross into the United States uh, because they are still coming, but they just have to evade 
the fenced areas or the walled areas and go through another route. Um, but it ends in death a lot of the time. And so um, human rights activists, religious activists, pro-immigrant rights activists are saying um, this is not worth it. Losing human lives um, is not worth the continual building up of, of this boundary because migrants are going to find a way to get here. And it's more about solving the systemic um, problems that force that migration to happen. At the same time that the U.S. is ramping up the militarization of the border, uh, another big thing that happens in the 90s, which I mentioned um, at the beginning, is NAFTA. So NAFTA um, is a trade agreement um, facilitated between Canada, the U.S., and Mexico in 1994, so again under the Clinton administration. Um, NAFTA is certainly something we were hearing about a lot in the presidential debates this past election cycle um, as a problematic treaty uh, in some people's opinions, precisely because what NAFTA did was eliminate taxes on a lot of goods flowing between the US, Mexico, and Canada. Um, and what ended up happening, ironically, is that US exports to Mexico um, including U.S. crops and particularly U.S. corn, once it was flowing into Mexico, that was actually cheaper than the native Mexican corn being sold in Mexican markets produced by Mexican farmers. Um, and so because corn from the United States was cheaper, Mexican citizens were buying U.S. corn instead of the corn of their fellow um, neighbors, you know, these rural farmers, these small farmers, and gradually over the course um, of a couple of years, millions of Mexican farmers were put out of business um, because their corn could not compete with cheaper NAFTA um, produced and flowing corn from the United States. And so what do these unemployed farmers do? What do they see as the solution to still put their agricultural expertise to use but still have to find another job? A lot of them migrate to northern Mexico but can't find jobs there, so they migrate further north to the United States. Um, so an unintended consequence of NAFTA um, was that it created more immigration from Mexico, whereas it was originally intended to perhaps benefit Mexico more economically than it actually did. Um, so it created more migration, whether it was uh, legal or illegal, coming um, from all of these dispossessed, unemployed small farmers um, who suffered the consequences of this um, free-flowing trade. So that is another reason um, and something that again our students don't often get a lot of deep knowledge about is that it is legislation, it's policies, it's trade agreements, all of these things have consequences, all of these things have effects. NAFTA was a really big reason why in the 90s places like Reading, places like where I you know am, uh, Brooklyn, New York City, start seeing more Mexican migration in the 90s because um, of this. It's because of, of trends like this that are pushing, continue, continuing to push uh, Mexican migration to the United States. So the 90s are a big decade um, for Mexican migration to the Northeast. Um, most Mexican origin people are still living in the Southwest, but we start to see larger numbers here in the Northeast. Um, more Mexican origin people are moving into different regions and pockets of the United States that haven't seen uh, their population growth before. 
Um, so places along the East Coast, like North Carolina, the poultry industry, we see Mexican migration going there. We see it going into rural Florida in the agricultural, the citrus industry there. Of course, we see it in New York City. Um, Mexicans are sort of taking the place in the barrios that Puerto Ricans used to occupy. Um, and along with Dominicans, Mexicans start changing the landscape of, of different places in New York. And here in Reading, too. Dominicans and Mexicans in the 90s and from there on um, really start changing the composition of communities, start changing the atmosphere and culture of communities, linguistically are changing communities' environment. Um, so this is all a product of those shifts created by different things in the 80s and 90s, um, IRCA and NAFTA, that, that move people. And people start taking advantage of hearing about these places, whether it's um, Iowa or Idaho or Pennsylvania, these states that had not seen them in big numbers before, but they start moving in for work opportunities, um, joining family, reunifying with their families, and that kind of thing. Um, so I know that some of you are familiar with the work of Robert Smith, who's written about uh, Mexicans in New York and talked about the transnational existence of Mexicans um, in the Northeast. And the same goes for places uh, like Reading, same goes for places like where I am um, working on Long Island. Um, the Mexican presence there has been growing, only growing, and um, people are living these transnational lives of being connected to both Mexico and their new homes here uh, in the Northeast. And by transnational lives, I mean anything from trying to replicate traditions and rituals from their home country, trying to um, preserve linguistically um, either the Spanish language or indigenous languages, because not all Mexicans speak Spanish, actually. A lot of them have this indigenous identity and speak other languages. Um, they vote back in their home country. They send remittances back to their home countries. Um, they uh, have their children go back and forth with them to still lead these bicultural transnational existences. Um, and also violence migrates, right, back and forth between uh, the two places of Mexico and the United States. So gang violence, drug-related violence, um, we're seeing this not only continue from parts of Mexico, but now from Central America. It's the new kind of trend to see. Uh, those two communities suffer from that traveling of violence across boundaries. So it's not only people migrating and moving and shifting, but also behaviors, um, also um, different kinds of communities that are that have been disrupted by drugs um, or political chaos um, and other factors in Latin America. So it's important to think of migration not only in terms of humans, but also um, human actions and, um, and larger communities. Uh, I just found this, this image um, in the New York Times. I was reading up on Reading. Um, again, this kind of example of how art uh, really reflects the presence and growing um, existence of Latino communities here. Um, and just to show you this chart, um, just to show you numbers in terms of the Mexican origin population and how it kept growing in the late 20th century. Um, you see that between 1980 and 1990, that was a big jump 
in terms of the total number of Mexican origin people in the United States. The 90s, as you see, another big decade. Like I was saying, um, for Mexican migration and movement into the US, the number is, is jumping. Um, so in 1980, 83% um, of all Mexican origin people lived in the Southwest, lived away from the Northeast, but that has certainly changed. By the 21st century, we have greater numbers of Mexican origin people, whether they're US born or migrant, um, living in more areas unaccustomed to having them before. And interacting with not only non-Latino populations, uh, but also other Latino populations like Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, um, and Central Americans. Okay, um, moving into the 21st century and talking about more recent um, developments in terms of immigration and immigration controversies and debates. Um, the 21st century, especially post 9-11, our immigration bureaucracy and our regulating mechanisms for controlling immigration certainly expand and grow. Um, so in the post 9-11 era, the INS, which had been our regulating mechanism for so long and that agency that controlled a lot of immigration related matters, got folded in and replaced by DHS, a bigger um, agency and department, the Department of Homeland Security. And the Department of Homeland Security covers anything from customs and border protections to ICE, um, Immigration and, and Customs Enforcement, which uh, conducts deportation raids, um, is in charge of detention um, centers. Uh, the Border Patrol is folded you know, under um, DHS. So, in the 21st century, the paradigm that we've been operating under is that immigration is a national security matter. And that is certainly different from how it's been in the past. The 21st century is the century where we have started to think in those terms. Um, and because we have started to relate immigration crises with national security crises in a whole new way, that has made the figure of the immigrant a more um, anxiety-producing figure, right? A figure that seems a like a threat in a different way, not just an economic threat, but in some people's minds, a very real physical threat. And that has certainly influenced the ways that people have seen uh, influxes of immigrants um, and thought about them in a totally new way. Um, so if the 21st century is about anything when it comes to immigration, it's about surveillance, it's about larger um, bodies of uh, monitoring boundaries, security, thinking of immigration as a, as a threat to national security. It's a whole different way of thinking about um, immigration. And because of this national security paradigm, if the government, if citizens see the government is not doing its job in terms of monitoring borders and monitoring immigration, vigilantism on the part of US citizens increases. Um, so it was no surprise that in the early 2000s, we saw the Minutemen in Arizona um, kind of form this citizen militia of people who thought, well, we'll do the job the government is not doing. We'll patrol our borders. Um, we live in a border state of Arizona. We'll take care of what the government is not doing for us. Um, and then you, Arizona became famous again um, in the later 2000s with SB 1070, that law that uh, permitted local law, law enforcement officials during traffic stops or routine checks to uh, 
assume or if they suspected somebody of not belonging in the country to check their status and be able to have the power to call up ICE um, and get them deported or to get them um, apprehended. That uh, was seen as one of the most severe measures taken by a state government uh, to give local law enforcement officials federal types of power when it came to immigration. So a lot of big changes. Only within the past you know, less than two decades in terms of how we see immigration and how we see immigrants themselves. And because of this new prism through which the federal government and state governments are looking at immigration, we've seen a response back from Mexican-American and Mexican immigrant communities uh, in terms of talking back to the nation, in terms of mobilizing as, as groups and as communities and speaking out against that marginalization, speaking out against that um, mistreatment or unequal treatment. Um, and one example of this was in uh, the spring of 2006. We saw all over the country these pro-immigrant rights marches happening all over the, all over the nation. Um, and these demonstrations involved between three and a half and five million people. Um, and these demonstrators were basically arguing that immigrants, and Mexican immigrants in particular, were the ones giving the lifeblood and the power behind um, so many labor and service sectors of our economy. But they were so much a fundamental part um, of how our economy worked, how our society worked. Um, and many immigrant rights activists were asking people, you know, imagine a day without a Mexican origin person in your life. Imagine a day um, without seeing a Mexican working in your home as a nanny or working um, in your yard as a landscaper or working on a construction site as an engineer or serving you in a restaurant. What would America look like if we took out that Mexican presence and that presence of Mexican immigrants? It would be a totally different nation. Um, and so that was the message in these pro-immigrant rights uh, demonstrations that the impact of Mexican origin people upon America um, is so significant, so long-standing, so deep, that it would be really hard to imagine America without the presence of that particular demographic. Um, and another example of how Mexican origin communities speak out, talk back, um, to marginalization, one example of this has been the activism around the DREAM Act, which we'll be discussing um, later today. The DREAM Act is really important, especially to young people in this country. Um, DREAMers, these young activists who are mobilizing around trying to get the DREAM Act passed um, on a federal level, which it hasn't yet been passed um, on a federal level, is basically uh, a measure to give a path to legal status for young people who were brought here through no choice or decision of their own. They were young when they were brought to the United States by their parents or other people um, and were brought before the age of 15 and can either choose to enroll in college or to enlist in the military in order to gain a path to legal status. Um, the DREAM Act has not been passed even though it was first proposed more than 15 years ago. Why hasn't it been passed on a national level? Why hasn't it been approved on a federal level? Um, a lot of people are still resistant to it, seeing it as um, an unfair use of taxpayers' money. Uh, some people argue, um, why give these youth 
a place in the line, um, taking the place of an American student, of a US-born student um, in college. Um, while proponents of the DREAM Act say, why wouldn't we want the best and the brightest and talented youth in our educational system? Why wouldn't we want to absorb these young people who could do a lot for our country down the line? Um, but it's still a very controversial act, apparently, uh, because it's been so hard uh, to pass. It keeps coming up for um, passage and keeps on getting uh, rejected over the past um, 15 years. So uh, I'm sure we'll have the opportunity to discuss the DREAM Act um, later today. But I just wanted to point that out really briefly as uh, a form of activism, along with activism around DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Act, um, that's been talked about a lot right now. Um, both the DREAM Act and DACA are for young people, are for young people who who know no other home but here, who were so young when they were brought um, that they identify as American but don't have the status yet to affirm that identity they may feel inside. Um, and I want to close by just um, talking about some of the myths, and we can talk about this in the Q&A. Um, the myths that are out there in public discourse that when you are teaching, you may encounter with your students, and how can we think about um, talking with our students about these ideas around Mexican immigration and Mexican origin people and Mexican migrants. How can we debunk these myths? How can we discuss them? How can we deconstruct them? Um, so one of the most prevalent myths that I think um, we as educators might encounter um, from our students is this idea that Mexican origin people are perpetually foreign or less American or they're different. Um, they're not seen as part of the American narrative, not seen as part of an American story. Um, and what I always try to emphasize in my teaching and in my um, lectures to my students and our discussions is that we really have to pay attention on a deeper level to the diversity of what it means to be of Mexican background in this country, what it means to have that um, lineage and background. It can mean so many different things. Um, Mexican populations are diverse along lines of citizenship. Some have been here in the United States for centuries, generations, decades. Others um, are expresseros who were legalized later, got their green cards later and stayed and made lives and families for themselves in the US. Some are more recent arrivals. Um, some are um, keeping Mexican status but feeling very American. Some have US um, legal status but feel very Mexican. If the identity um, issues are so complex and diverse, um, this is not a population to be generalized about. It's not a population to be homogenized. Um, culturally and linguistically, like I said, um, a lot of my students don't know that Mexicans can have indigenous identity and that can be their primary identity. Uh, that they don't speak Spanish. That if they're uh, Triqui or Mixtec or these other um, uh, you know, part of these other communities, they may speak a language other than Spanish. They don't fit into our um, normal ideas or traditional ideas of what a Latino is, what a Mexican might be. And generationally, um, it's also important to pay attention to as the generations um, keep coming in the United States, that someone who's third or fourth generation like I am, Mexican-American, far removed from the migration experience, has less of a connection, perhaps culturally, 
linguistically to Spanish, with each generation there's something different to observe. And so the diversity of Mexican origin people, the deep diversity, the long, the long-standing diversity is really important. A second myth um, that I think a lot of my students at least come into my classes believing or thinking or hearing um, from other people is economic arguments about Mexican origin people and Mexican migrants, that they're taking jobs away from Americans. They're draining economic resources. They're a drain on our economy, and they don't pay taxes. Um, many studies have shown us that immigrants, and particularly Mexican immigrants, are not in competition for many jobs um, with US citizens. In fact, they're going into these either niche jobs um, in sectors where we don't find a lot of citizens anymore, particularly agriculture. Um, the agribusiness, uh, agricultural industry has really taken to employing guest workers, employing foreign workers, and does not provide the wages or conditions that attracts a lot of US citizens. And they themselves don't try to attract US citizen workers but goes straight for um, workers for, from abroad. Um, so studies have shown that immigrants typically move into employment that's either been created for them um, or that is not really uh, attractive to US citizens. Um, so that's one thing um, that I have to emphasize to my students, that a lot of US workers are moving into different sectors of labor over the course of the 20th century, moving more into the um, to uh, white-collar jobs, suburban-based jobs, um, and that immigrants, especially in agriculture and in, a, in other industries, are not really stealing jobs, but taking jobs created for them by employers. Um, we have to think about how specific industries in the United States are actually experiencing one of the biggest subsidies ever uh, by being able to hire guest workers constantly, by being able to hire foreign workers through US-sponsored programs at a cheaper cost, at a lower cost. Um, that kind of subsidy when it comes to having that cheaper labor, it increases profit margins. It allows the agricultural industry to continue benefiting from not having to pay a minimum wage federally, not having to pay overtime. Um, not having to give a day of rest to workers. Um, unlike industry, unlike the reforms of the New Deal that made the industrial sector put these protections into place, agriculture still doesn't have to put those um, protections into place. And so we find um, a really large Mexican presence there. And when it comes to the tax question, um, students don't often know that um, undocumented immigrants do pay taxes. They do put almost $13 billion a year into Social Security, whether that is through forged Social Security cards, whether that's through giving a taxpayer ID number instead of a Social Security number when they apply for work. Um, undocumented immigrants are getting taxes taken out of paychecks, but they don't reap the benefits of, of being a taxpayer, right? Because they're evading, uh, they're trying to evade detection. Um, so a lot of people don't know that immigrants are actually responsible for providing Social Security payments right now to elderly Americans. Um, it's not often something my students know. And the final myth um, is that walls will work, um, that a wall will work, that border militarizing and building up our, our border um, reinforcement and enforcement um, will work at deterring migration. We've seen in the past 
historically that that doesn't work. Um, financially, it's not realistic. We have spent billions of dollars on just partial fence um, in certain parts of the U.S.-Mexico border. Migrants, like I said before, will always find other ways to get over, whether it's by air, by water, um, by crossing those more dangerous um, land routes. Uh, migrants will find other ways to get here precisely because the reasons that they're leaving hold greater risks than the, than the risk of going. Um, if we think about drug cartel violence in Mexico, if we think about gang violence in Central America, if we think about NAFTA-provoked economic insecurity, if we think about all these things that have taken a toll on people's lives, um, it really is no surprise to me as a historian who has been studying this and th these patterns over time that people are coming for bigger reasons um, that, that outweigh the dangers they may face in crossing. Um, and immigrants wouldn't make these journeys if they didn't have to. Um, and uh, so this idea that walls will work, it would be one mechanism of deterrence, but it wouldn't be the end all to this much deeper uh, problem, uh, this much deeper inequality that we see uh, between the US and Mexico. And a counter-argument to Wall's uh, working is, well, what about the US-Canadian border? We're not talking about reinforcing that border. We're not talking about um, the porous nature of that border. And actually, Canadians make up a large part of undocumented people in the United States by overstaying visas, not having legal status anymore in this country. Um, and so when we think about borders, when we think about security, when we think about um, explaining xenophobia to our students and explaining anti-immigrant sentiment, we always have to think about um, that xenophobia, a big factor in it, is the image of America that people have in their minds. If you're thinking about a particular migrant as a threat, it's because um, you may not see them as the face of America. Why are we looking at some immigrants and borders and not other migrants and other borders? Um, and so the long-standing history between the U.S. and Mexico, these historical patterns of embracing and rejecting, um, I think are a really important lens through which to show our students that this is not a recent crisis. This is not a recent problem. Our relationship to people of Mexican descent in this nation is one that has very deep roots. It's one that has a long history um, and one that certainly deserves examination. And that's what makes me so happy to talk to you today and to see you here today is that it's obvious to me that you appreciate the importance of teaching this and of exposing our students to this. Um, so I'm going to close with that and um, I'm open to questions, comments, and discussing this with you. Thank you. I think it's important that we all realize we've all been through this at one time or another. My own ancestors came from Ireland, Poland, really deplorable conditions. Right. And we've all been through this, being rejected yeah. until we were accepted. Pennsylvania Germans fighting for their identity here in Pennsylvania, language. And if we could all understand that, I think we could people would understand what's happening today better. Yeah. Yeah, one of the things that I do in my classes, because a lot of my students are Irish-American. They come from Irish background. A lot of them are local from Long Island. 
And I always pass around this political cartoon. A lot of cartoons of the 19th century depicted Irish um, descent people as having really dark skin, being akin to African Americans, and, and treating them as such in discourse and in images. Um, and that really gets them thinking about, oh, when we're talking about immigration history, it's not just one group that has been targeted consistently over time. It's been a moving target. Um, it's totally shifted. But for similar reasons, like you said, it's that it's that pattern. We're just seeing it played out with different people. Yeah, absolutely. about present-day uh, students who have applied for DACA mm -hmm. and the question of renewal and confidentiality. Yeah. We know that the current administration has respected that. Mm -hmm. Are we still encouraging students to apply in light of incoming yeah, administration? That's yeah, that's a really good question and an important question. Um, I know that there has certainly been a movement across universities to declare themselves sanctuary campuses. Um, and at my institution at Stony Brook, our president has committed to keeping the terms under which we protect, we protect students' confidentiality. Um, so universities and schools are under regulations um, of the Department of Homeland Security protected spaces. Um, so confidentiality can't just be automatically breached. Um, in, in the ways that it could be breached in, in other spaces. And so it really is a struggle now between faculty and students and um, with administrators at their campuses. How is this individual school going to tackle this particular policy? And I think what incoming students, what we might start hearing is students asking on campus visits, like what is the policy around that? And we may have to start answering. Um, that question a little bit more firmly and school presidents um, and administrators will have to take a stand on that. Um, I know that SUNY campuses are putting together like a network-wide um, petition to be sanctuary spaces um, and I don't know what the conversation's been like here if it's happened around that um, but I think it will be a question that we as educators are going to have to talk with our students about as it informs their decision to to uh, enroll with us or not. Yeah. Well, it's just ironic that as I was pulling into the parking lot today listening to NPR, and somebody may have uh, heard this after, but the last question I heard was, well, should we send our kids to school on Monday? You know? Yeah. Um, so these yeah. are big, you know, big, big questions being asked. Absolutely. Stories in the media right now. I know, yeah. And it, the exact same thing happened after SB 1070 in Arizona. Um, because all these copycat laws started cropping up in Georgia and Alabama um, and parents started pulling their kids out of school and uh, leaving town. And so we ended up with ghost towns all over the deep south um, just a few years ago because parents were so afraid um, for their children. There was a hand somewhere. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to comment. Our Rex Multicultural Club raised money for a DACA scholarship and oh. we have $2,400 that we're going to distribute. Oh, that's great this spring for next fall, but I think the club members are concerned about moving forward with a scholarship because if we don't have DACA students to apply for it after the next academic year, why raise money for it? And you know, that's very deflating as far as attitudes because I don't even know 
what percentage of the club membership is DACA. Sometimes they don't even right. tell their friends right. about their status. Right. So it is as just to you know comment on what Jack brought up that regardless of what your campus wants to do as far as being a sanctuary, the fact of the matter is if they are being deported or they can't rely on being here, what, what can we do? Our, our, current, our current policy is, is um, we do have a mechanism through our admissions office for students who, who declare DACA, who use DACA, and they um, receive in-county tuition. That, that was a recent change for us in the last year or couple years. Uh -huh. So, um, that, and that's good information for all of you to know that, that they are not treated as an international student, which means a different right. tuition structure that they are, they are given in-county rates, if they, and there is a confidentiality um, there's one person who handles all of that. Yeah. No, it's, it's totally scary. It's scaring a lot of students right now, a lot of young people. Um, and I wish I could talk to them with certainty. And we just can't at this moment. Um, and, you know, some of my best students have told me in, in my office, just between us, of their status um, and really are scared that they won't be able to continue the education they wanted to, to have. Um, and the activism around the DREAM Act, I think, is going to converge with DACA a little bit because they are moving towards the same goals. Um, but what DREAM Act activists have a problem with is, okay, DACA only applies to the student, but what about families? What about the larger communities that that student is supported by? Um, they might be protected if we keep DACA in place, um, but everything else may change around them. Um, that may prevent them from even continuing to, to have a presence here. And one of the reasons why that scholarship was put in place is they, they, are, they still are not eligible for financial aid. Right. So again, I'm hoping some people may not be fully aware of what we're doing for them. Yeah. Yes? Uh, community colleges in Pennsylvania aren't part of a system. So we're more independent. We're in a more fragile, our students are in a lot more fragile place mm -hmm. than Students, I think, in the SUNY yeah. system or the CUNY system. Yeah. yeah. I, I always have a lot of comments. But thinking about what you were saying about um, Mexican Americans not competing for jobs, I, I grew up in California, and we always had in the 60s and 70s, we it was. A culture that we embraced. We had, you know, low riders were the cool people. They had their cars all hyped up and everything. Yeah. But my sister still lives in California, and she has Mexican American gardener, Mexican American housekeepers, and I think that isn't that a shame? It's this much um, history has passed, but those are still the typical jobs. I think, even in a place like California, where you would think they would have moved beyond that, and many have. I mean, right. that's not to say, I think it's it's an, it's an almost paradoxical, embarrassing situation that Californians, I think, love and respect Mexicans for their work ethic, and, they, and they're just very pleasant people. But we don't mind still hiring them as our gardeners and our housekeepers. Mm -hmm. And that's really a shame, I think, too, that we haven't moved on. Yeah, and, I, it's, and it's all about image. We don't often see images circulating of Mexican-Americans with upward social mobility. 
we often see images circulating around the low-wage service sector um, employees, the day laborers, uh, the domestic workers, construction workers, landscape landscapers. Those are the images that people still tend to see as depicting the Mexican-American work experience, even though that may not reflect reality, especially in California where that history is just so deep and, um, and long there in terms of the fight for upward social mobility. And I think, again, it's about what we see around us, what we hear around us, what we pigeonhole people into being. Um, that is, it can be very harmful because then people think, well, that's their place. That's their natural um, place or situation. Um, and that, that can be really damaging. Actually, yeah. I mean, thinking about that then, um, do you have recommendations for um, resources that might we might turn to to um, counter that lack of imagery, you know, to to amplify images yeah. that you know counter that narrative of lack of vulnerability in these communities? Yeah. Well, um, as someone who really uses oral history a lot in her work, mm -hmm. there are some great oral history archives online um, that I have my students do listening assignments. Um, to listen to oral histories, because that way if they're commuting to school, they can listen to it um, on their phone or on a podcast or something, or um, just link to the to the website. So the Bracero History Archive, braceroarchive.org, is one that I use a lot. The Rosie, the Riveter Project um, out of California, which has a lot of oral histories of Mexican-American women who were riveters and defense industry workers, who were citizens and kind of contributed to the war effort in a different way on the home front. Um, is a really great resource. And then um, going into you know um, written documents online, I just take advantage of all the digital stuff I can. There's so much out there that even I didn't know about, but that I constantly am going to our librarian and being like, what do we have a subscription to that I can you know kind of blend these into into our readings. Um, and of course, I am never shy about sharing my own family story. Um, I think it's important because students are curious about what my positionality is uh, to give them a sense of, yeah, my dad grew up in the Depression and was made to eat in the kitchen um, of restaurants rather than in the main dining room. Or my mother was punished for speaking Spanish in school in the 60s and 70s because it wasn't allowed. So giving them the sense that um, families of Mexican origin have really long history. Um, here in the U.S., uh, but that the person standing in front of them is a college professor. How did that process happen? How do those generational shifts and changes happen? Um, that is a story that I think speaks to their experiences as people trying to gain that social mobility themselves through education. Um, I think just little things like that make a big difference to my students. Um, and I'm always surprised by just tweaking a little bit to include a, a personal story or an oral history. It clicks with them a whole lot um, differently than reading something on paper. Um, so that's one suggestion we have. Uh, Don, I know you. Yeah, I was going to raise the question about resources so that they would be captainer to what right. you just shared. Because as I was listening to you, I thought, Geez, I know I heard somewhere about like the greatest number of Latino, inclusive of Mexican origin, folks have, are, are now in state legislature positions, right? Right. right. <laughs> so right, right. you know, yeah. there there's a counter narrative yeah. to to that image, but mm -hmm. you know, what's I guess what we're more bombarded with 
right. and are not like critically interrogating. Right. right. Is this old narrative that yeah. just doesn't apply anymore? And yeah. We've gone beyond that. Yeah, and I think it's our job to provide that arsenal of counter, yeah. you know, speaking back to those. Yeah. I had another question or statement, and it just could be my age showing up here. <laughs> Um, but I so appreciated your very first slide on terminology. Mm -hmm. That oh, was so, I mean, I really, really appreciated it in so many ways. Yeah. And as I read through the different terms, you know that word, Hispanic? Yeah. I have struggled yeah. with that word uh -huh. for decades. Uh -huh. um, I just have not, I, I thought it was a Reagan right. term. Right. <laughs> Uh -huh. created by him or advisors or whatever, and I never was settled whether it was, um, you know, a self-identified, you know, term, you know. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't up on your list. Yeah, I was going to wait for Q&A, actually, so I'm, oh, I'm okay. glad you brought it up. Um, okay. So, yeah, the way that I teach, it's one of the first things I teach in my Latino history courses is what's the difference between Hispanic and Latino? Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of my students have no idea um, and what Hispanic connotes is a relationship to Spain. Um, so it's about language. Uh, Latino relates to geography, Latin America. Um, so Hispanic leaves out people who um, speak Portuguese, who have a connection to Portugal rather than Spain, so it leaves out Brazilians. So Hispanic leaves out Brazilians, for instance. Whereas Latino would embrace Brazilians because they are in the geographical scope of Latin America, but excludes Spaniards um, because of, of um, geographically Spain is removed, right? Um, so I always show them this um, little video on the differences between those terms. And Hispanic was something pushed by the Reagan era and pushed in governmental discourse. This is how we're going to talk about this population. Um, but then there was always this, and it shows the complexity of identifying terms, People always had a problem with it. It was never really accepted by everybody. And I think Latino is not accepted by everybody either. Mm -hmm. um, and it's important for students to know um, and to remember that you as an individual have the power to determine what you want um, to, be, to be known as. And also that identity shifts depending on your circumstances. When I go home, I'm a Tejana if I'm in Texas. Whereas if I'm here in the Northeast, I call myself Latina. It's just, we just have different um, labels that come to the forefront at different um, moments or with different groups of people. And so um, I emphasize that these terms are not interchangeable. Some are umbrella terms. Some are more um, specific terms. But the, the reason that I'm laying them out is because there is no one way to be Latino. There is no one way to be uh, Mexican. And um, again, it's that, that counter-narrative of you cannot homogenize um, this population. It's just too complicated. Yeah. Yes. Well, to, to the points raised about um, you know, the, the, the vision that we have of Mexicans and Hispanics and Latinos in this country, uh, if you do a, a simple internet search on like, Mexican professionals, you may come across websites for like MAES, you know, MIES, the Mexican American Engineers and Scientists Societies, you know, CHEV, the Society of Hispanic and Professional Engineers, and so on. I mean, I happen to be one of those. I was born and raised in Mexico, and I teach math at Berks. I'm a professor there. So it, it's out there. 
you just need to go and look for it. Yeah. But but it's obvious. I mean, the, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry ten years ago was given to uh, to a chemist of, of Mexican ancestry. Mm -hmm. So so the information is there. But like you said, right? It's it's much juicier to talk about the people who are in the lower classes right. rather than the success stories. Right. And 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 there's to that point, there, there's a bigger problem that ha will have to be addressed. Mm -hmm. And I have no idea how it's going to be done, but the fact that we have these masses of people working in agriculture, mm -hmm. but they still have a second-class citizenship, right. um, and that has to be solved at some point. Yeah. I mean, we're reaping the benefits of people working in substandard conditions for super low wages, everything underneath the law, and that is not sustainable. Yeah. I mean, it has, it has worked for so long, right? But there's the typical mantra that, well, would you pay $10 for a tomato? Well, that this, this this cannot go on much longer. At some point, there's going to have to be a cognizance and and the situation to fix it. Yeah, because we will. I mean, we already have this underclass mm -hmm. um, in American society, and what the continuation of these trends will do is just perpetuate the idea that that is how it is. That there is an underclass, and certain people compose it. Um, and I was doing some research on the economics of what it would take for farm workers, for instance, to have a living wage. All it would take would be for every American household to pay $15 more per year on their groceries to bring farm workers up to a living wage in this country. It's not much, um, just $15 a year per family. Um, but those little changes in the prices of our crops um, would certainly provoke a reaction because for so long we have been buying our food um, at a price that has come at the cost of human um, suffering. And you mentioned other protections that agricultural workers are do not have. What were some of those as well as, well as wages that you said? Um, so uh, the agricultural industry doesn't have to pay overtime. Um, it doesn't have to give a day of rest. Um, so in New York State, workers can be made to work seven days a week and don't um, get any days off. Um, they uh, don't have to recognize collective bargaining rights in the same way that the industrial sector does. So unions. Um, are still something that a lot of employers continue to bust or um, discourage. And um, also with these um, guest worker programs in place, the H-2A visa that we have in place now, it's very similar to the Brasero program. We have just um, continued it in the present day by tying workers to one employer and not allowing them to leave that employer um, because something's going wrong. And so workers are so scared to speak up against employers that may be mistreating them because they think, well, I'm going to lose my contract and be deported, so I might as well just stay in this uh, position. But if we allowed the freedom to move employers um, and to, to put more inspectors on the ground who would look at these conditions, um, it might improve the situation. But um, agribusiness has really profited so much for so long that it's hard to get that system to change. It would have to take citizens demanding of their um, representatives to change this stuff, but it goes on on such different lanes on the state level that we need to build up to a national. And there are probably powerful lobbies that oh, yeah. protect the industry. Yeah, um, agricultural, the agricultural lobby is one of the most powerful lobbies, um, has been for a while, continues to be and uh, the threat that they often put out is this idea like, are you willing to pay more for your burger? Are you willing to pay more for your lettuce? Are you, 
um, and the American consumer has gotten used to prices and outsourcing in this era of globalization. Um, that we get produce all year round from all these different parts of the world at a particular price. And um, if we pay our farm workers a certain amount, we will have to pay more at a fast food joint. We will have to pay more at a restaurant. We will have to pay more um, at our grocery store. And to get the American public to accept that and frame it as this is the right thing to do to treat our workers equally, um, it brings the notion of ethical eating to a totally different place. Mm -hmm. Um, because the local food movement, organic food movement, farm to table, all of these trendy um, ways of thinking about food and eating, it is often disconnected from interrogating how the workers are being treated. Um, we don't go to farmers markets and ask how much do you pay your workers, or not many people are asking those questions. Um, we're asking, well, what was the chicken's life like? Um, instead of the worker who's taking care of those chickens, what, what, are, what is their life like? Um, so I think it'll take a total shift in our culture around eating, ethical eating, and what it means to be um, somebody who's advocating for food justice. Um, I think that's what um, some of us who do work on, my next project's going to be about food and food workers. Um, what do those of us who teach about food, who teach about commodities and culture um, and rituals around eating, how can we insert more of this human history into that? And we just had the farm show in Harrisburg where farming was very, to me, glorified. It seemed like yeah. a huge Romantic public sense. relations yeah. festival was heavily covered in the newspaper. And yeah. I'm sure none of those things were asked. Yeah, I mean, it's not to say that some farmers aren't doing a wonderful job with their workers. But even if we think of a farm as boutique or small, that doesn't equate to fair labor. If we think of food as organic, that doesn't mean it was produced under fair working conditions. Um, and so putting those two rhetorics in conversation with each other is something that's really necessary. Um, because then we start thinking about the worker and not just the plate in front of us. So who got that plate to us? Um, like you were saying, there are all these trendy eating styles. Yeah. And personally, I just changed my eating style. And as I was researching it, I came across a lot of information about labor movements tied to our food. Yeah. And I believe it was a, a BuzzFeed video. Mm -hmm. um, kind of got a lot of attention from these smaller communities. It's not yet like in the comments right. of the actual video. Yeah. Um, it's these little communities that are talking about it later. Um, and the show showed, I, I think the title was something along the lines of the cost of your plate around the world. Right. And it was really glorifying this idea of industrialized economies and how little like we in America spend versus right. how expensive food is in these other countries. Right. But there was really no conversation behind it about the politics that allow for this, or what is causing an increase in the price. Depending on where you are, it kind of left this idea of just open, oh, obviously we would be paying less. Right. And um, these marginalized conversations of, because it's really a human violation issue that's allowing you to eat such inexpensive corn and tomatoes and. Mm -hmm and to embrace these movements. Um, and there was a large issue with chicken farming recently, where yeah. it came forward and, and what companies are really doing to manipulate the chicken farmers and their workers and terrify them into legislation. Right. If this is going on even our, on a scale where we interact with it three times a day without thinking about it, where else are we seeing 
the invisible worker that we're not noticing. I mean, I just noticed this six months ago. So what am I missing that I can bring into my classroom that you might know about? Yeah, um, no, it's such a it's a it's a great point, and it points to this contradiction that someone was mentioning earlier of um, these a lot of these people in low wage uh, work are purposefully made invisible because to make them visible would be to make other systems and other problems visible, um, and in doing so, it erases a history of contribution. Mm -hmm. Right. It erases that history of they have always been here. They have always been doing this. Um, these aren't recent, you know, arrivals. These are people um, of varying national backgrounds over time who have done this work for us, and that we have been able to profit from it in ways that we are so unconscious of now because it's just so routine. Um, what I do often in my teaching is pair the the idea of worker justice in fast food with fast fashion. I think that's another uh, arena in which students kind of get it um, when, if we talk about the food and garment industry together because it allows us to talk about globalization. It allows us to talk about outsourcing. Um, it allows us to talk about subterranean or underworlds of the ways in which we look good, feel good, eat well, um, but at a very convenient, cheap price. Um, and so, um, you know, talking about Forever 21 and Cesar Chavez in one lecture, it doesn't seem on the surface to be something you would do, but it actually makes a lot of sense uh, to my students if I pair it, uh, you know, think about worker justice, think about invisibility, and think about fast, convenient, um, what we have come to prize in our daily lives today. Uh, and if we take a moment to slow down, we would see what is moving by us so fast or moving underneath us um, so below us that we're not paying attention to it. That slowing down and taking a deeper look at um, people and going past the commodity or the product um, is something that I try to put in conversation as we talk about different things. Uh, this fast, slow dichotomy is something that I try to, try to look at. Um, so that doesn't completely answer your question, but at least that's one kind of technique that I use in my um, classes on the working class and classes on immigration is talking about those two industries together. Okay, thank you. And you really, when you kind of broke down this was the legislation and these were the ramifications. Right. So we talk about the ramifications, but we don't talk about the legislation really that got us there. Right, right. Um, and that happens all the time. I yeah. Think. But if, do you have any suggestions as far as, um, like in the chicken case, mm -hmm. this is why we keep this quiet, because these are the legislations that are being upheld with it. Yeah. And like you were saying, by erasing people's history and their contribution to an industry, it's very easy for us now to say, oh, well, these are just agitators, and this is new, right. and they're just making this very More difficult, very difficult yeah. this obscene demand that's going to lead to the $10 tomato, right. and this has always worked this way. Do you know of any, um, even cases that have been brought forward that we could go back and kind of show testimony or anything mm -hmm. that would bring that history to the forefront? Um, it, it all depends on what region you're talking about. I, I am starting to learn more about the Northeastern region and trying to find prior examples. 
uh, that are again these counter narratives of it didn't need to work out this way. It didn't need to turn out this way. Um, that history is full of contingency. It's not full of inevitability. Um, so when I was writing my book on California, what I often pointed my students to if I was discussing California was um, the labor strikes that went on during the Great Depression era. So the 1933 strike wave in California um, was this wave of 20-something strikes where workers um, in the citrus industry and in the cotton industry and in the canneries um, agitated for rights and got the agricultural industry of California to pay them higher wages um, and to give them uh, better conditions that actually increased productivity, increased um, uh, uh, harvest amounts um, by making changes such as um, getting rid of the, and later in the 70s this happened, getting rid of the short-handled hoe used to um, weed out uh, the ground or till the soil and replacing it with a long-handled one that did not injure farm workers' spines and actually got them to work better. Um, so things that would on the surface seem to be difficult, that would seem to be inconveniences, um, actually did not change things for the consumer and made the worker much more able to keep working um, and not decrease their life expectancy by, by so long. Um, but again, that's like a local example. I think the power comes in local examples and showing students and talking about contingency. A lot of my students have never heard that word before, and I use it a lot because um, like your world looks the way it does because of consequences of various things in the past. The world we live in is not necessarily the world that could have been. Um, and this uh, goes the other way too. Perhaps things have happened that have led um, us to be in a more positive, progressive place than perhaps um, it would have been in a different circumstance if something had changed. Um, and to get them to think about that history is not a study of the inevitable, it's a study of uh, a multi-directional sort of ripple effect that it could have had a lot of different endings to that story. It helps them think about, oh, well then my world is not, this isn't the way it has to be. Um, and it's not the way I have to think about these things. And when I think about uh, how our workers are treated, I will no longer think, well, that's just the way it is. Uh, right? It's one of the ways that it is or could be, but didn't have to be. Um, so while it may be theoretical, I think the more that I talk about it with my students, the more that they keep remembering that um, throughout the term um, and bringing that up and being like, well, it didn't have to be this way, and so we don't have to think about it in these terms. Thank you very much. Yeah. I know you had your hand up. Oh, yeah, but um, I was just have a let, not claiming. I was going back to the clothing industry. I was reading oh, yeah. the Wall Street Journal argument uh, about that was H&M Paradigm. Yes. Right? It was like they would go to fashion shows, steal stuff, and like, we will knock this out. Right. In two weeks. Right. 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 Yeah, that's how we're gonna we're gonna do this. Yeah. Make our money. Yeah. Uh, this is because I kind of posted on something you were talking about and uh, just asked about. Um, have you? And I don't even know how to frame the question. Um, have you looked into this idea that that this is the economically sound model has become so pervasive? Um, Across like political spectrums, I, I find it like interesting. Like, 
both left and right will make this argument. I have incredibly liberal friends who like, you know, embrace this paradigm of that this is good. Right. That, you know, it's opportunity, you know, the wash of, of funds, and that they're, you know, it's not a bad thing and ultimately it's gonna work itself out. Um, I mean, I don't even know how to frame what I'm asking you. <laughs> Do you notice that as well? I mean, is that? Oh yeah, I, I totally notice it. it. It's divorced from being partisan. Um, it's it's not a way of thinking that is only limited to one worldview. We find it among people of varying political and worldviews, um, and that's why it's it's hard work to untangle it for students. But it's necessary because it has become so entrenched from various kind of figures and angles coming at them um, that they before they're forced to think about it, um, just accept it. Um, and it's the acceptance of the status quo or, or a message that's constantly being given to us, no matter where it's coming from, um, that it, it's, it's a lot of work to undo all the threads that have made up this um, rope, or whatever we want to call it, this like very tightly bound idea of, well, that's just the way the world works. And I can't imagine us, you know, extricating ourselves from that system. Um, with the study of history, we're able to see that that system evolved. Um, it did not exist from the beginning of time, you know, whatever. Um, so yeah, I totally get what you're saying, that uh, this isn't um, something that comes from a particular political stance. We can teach it from a lot of different positionalities and end up with that same uh, mandate for our students to think about your world, like analyze it and critically analyze the patterns you see going on because they are patterns. They're not the way things are. Um, they're developments. Okay, the follow-up? Yeah. Do you know anyone who's, in, uh, just totally speculating as a best in our discussion boards, like discussion board scholarship right. here. Um, did, do you know anyone who's looked into the housing bubble in the labor trends? Um, because it's just, watching something about the housing bubble and the crash of 2007. Oh. And it spikes, 97. Like that's when the, that whole thing starts. I was wondering, have, has anyone looked into that, with the idea of the labor and exploitation of labor and, and contributions to the bubble? Relations to the bubble? Um, I myself don't know it. I'd be curious if anybody else knows, uh, can recommend anything for you. I can't right now. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Um, but that's a really interesting, relation that I didn't think about before. Yes, a quick comment on those threads you were talking about. You know, I have an example of a student who was a rap student, a member of the Multicultural Club. Mm -hmm. Had it, she was one of my students, left class often because she was translating for fellow immigrants in court. She ended up, I think she was an honor student as well, she dropped out of school and started a house cleaning business with her husband. Uh -huh. And I continue to think, why house cleaning? Why not continue with your court work? Why not do something like that? So how much of it's self-perpetuating? I just, you know, it's hard for me as a privileged person to understand maybe the desperation behind the decision, but why continue to do that kind of service work and not continue, like, continue to do court work? 
do some translating, do some legal work? You know, what's behind those decisions? Yeah, I would, I would have to know your student better to know the motivations of that couple and that mm -hmm. individual and that relationship and why they decided to make that decision. I don't know if it was an issue of access to loans for a particular type of business versus another route, um, that perhaps it's points of access along the way to developing your professional identity that get in the way of um, people's ambitions. It could be um, simply because that was a decision made between the two of them. It's expedient, it's lucrative. Um, I guess I would have to know more about the situation, but again, it speaks to, um, it's not easily generalizable, um, we can't generalize, uh, but it's also mutually um, constitutive. Uh, stereotypes then um, permeate what people may think they can do with their lives, or what they have access to, or what people are going to prevent them from trying to do. Um, and that is another reason that they're so damaging, um, is that they may limit somebody who isn't necessarily limited, but who thinks they're going to encounter limits. Um, but again, I, I wouldn't know the reason for that. Well, we always hope that when they're in college that they're breaking through that kind of right. limitation. Right. I don't see that as a limitation. She's starting her own business. Yeah. She's independent. She's probably she's working with her I'm family. Saying. I mean, yeah. so I, I don't know the right. circumstances right. either. But yeah. that may be a very may have been a really good decision on her part. And may have been a strategic move. Like I don't it, know. Strategy is yeah, it makes money. I mean, yeah, yeah different right. reasons. I was going to say that I was going to before Dawn asked that, um, and this is a question that really arises from ignorance, and I hope I don't offend anyone. So um, my family's in New Jersey. Some are in Ocean City, where I don't see this as much. But the other ones are right outside Philadelphia, like Cherry Hill area, and industries like um, house cleaning, um, landscaping, general construction, um, like. I'm always kind of envious, and this is totally like horrible. My envy is that I can't get that here. I can't get. I can't find. I can't get someone to clean my house. You know. I can't get someone to cut my. You know. I can't get it like they can get it. But what if that's not really my question? What interests me is that these companies are owned largely by Hispanics. Um, and employers. So I, I wonder about that. Like, well, when you ask why house cleaning, and I'm like, I think it, that's a pretty lucrative business. She's probably going to provide better for her and her family with a housekeeping business than translation. But what I guess I was thinking, when I look at this in New Jersey, I think of other immigrant populations, for instance, Asian ones, where you have um, the companies owned by immigrants, right? And then largely employing like immigrants, right? And it seems like you do get into questions of, you know, workers' rights, low wages. Like there's that's where I see a dangerous perpetuation. Does that make sense? And I don't know about California. I mean I don't I, I think it's different and I don't see it here in this part of Pennsylvania. Um, I don't know what she's, but in that, but in New Jersey, I see that a lot. Yeah. Um, and you have people, you know, they drive, um, you know, people to your house to do the work, you know, 
clean, you know, do your do your lawns, clean your houses, and sometimes take care of your children, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, do more handyman kind of construction than like building homes. It's not really contract. Um, how? What is the future of that person? Like, if you get into government, if you get to into being part of the system that you want to change then you have the potential to, to move beyond. And I think she was starting into that and, and then... Can I jump in real quick? Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I think sometimes we get close to like disenfranchising that person through their decision. Like, um, my brother-in-law is from El Salvador and his family came over during that time of that class. He's a wonderful man. He's incredible. And when he started a mechanics business, people kind of did the same thing, like, oh, he could have done so much, and look, he's just another, like, Mexican mechanic kind of thing, because people always think that's translated. Yeah, yeah and, um, but it was a really wise decision for him from a personal standpoint, because it allowed immigration policies to be altered for his family, because he was hiring them to come work in that business. So it's also an avenue. Um, yes, you've come here and you've been given these opportunities and you might be doing great in school or this or that, but then you take like that access towards a loan and you're able to find pathways for other people and to get them into the same discussion and the same arguments and give them a footpath in also. I think if I can just summarize some of what you said, plus your own personal story that you haven't shared, as far as contingency, right, right. is I think what's key for our students is that they have, that they feel that they have agency. Right. Whether that is to pursue one track over the other, whatever their contingencies are, their choices that are laid out before them in their own lives, and I'm going to take to the personal your own personal narrative of growing up in a small Texas town, um, Mexican-American, who never visualized herself even being in the, in, in on the East Coast, you were very much uh, or academia, right? So can you just speak a little bit about that? Some of that is going to move on. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I, yeah, like I was saying before, I use my own. So I'm not afraid to use my own story with my students because I think it can really help them think about their own agency and how they think about their own future. So. Um, I grew up in a small town in Texas that was very segregated along racial lines. 50% um, white, 50% um, Mexican-American, and uh, always told by my counselors and my teachers that, um, you know, your future is going to the local college, it's, you can enlist in the military, that's your options um, as a low-income Mexican-American woman. And uh, when I decided to apply to Yale for undergrad, um, my counselors thought I was crazy. Um, I didn't tell my parents about it because they were so overprotective they wouldn't even think about letting me go, but I got in and um, it just wasn't an opportunity I could pass up. Um, but there were so many messages telling me that no one does this if, if they're from your background, if they're from your position, uh, you're a girl, you can't afford it, you are Mexican-American, you're not going to succeed in that context. Um, and even my own family um, not supporting my decision to go away to the Northeast for college, it really made me think about um, messages that were given um, it, from a lot of people in our lives. And if we can be um, 
like a, a provider of a counter narrative for our students if they are encountering um, people who may be trying to to send a message about limitations or expectations um, that they have some degree of power over their future. Um, so in the instances you're talking about, there's two ways to look at it. You are controlling your circumstances by taking um, advantage of a position or a business that might be really lucrative for you. Or we may have to think about class and differences between different groups of people and how we replicate systems of oppression and dominance and inequality and how that's not exclusive to one group of people, that we see it happen to many different groups of people in between different groups of people. Um, but again, to, to like um, you were saying, to give them a sense of they have the power to think for themselves, to act for themselves, um, and, and to see their world differently with a more critical perspective. Because on the other side of that, and I know we've experienced that student too, whose parents are convinced first generation out that their, their child's going to be a doctor. And I said, and so, and then they have that big so it's it's really yeah. truly under this you know helping that student in self-discovery and just yeah. finding their way and yeah. that agency may be owning a business that agency may be um, taking advantage of the mechatronics program as, a, as opposed to going for the BS in engineering and taking you know because it's a di they're different modes right. and it's just really truly um, and we can't always do that we do our best in meeting the students where they are and right. helping them to develop their sense of agency. Right, and it, those critical moments of intervention, we were talking about this at dinner last night, it's that, that those moments where you can intervene uh, that I think can be really powerful and you can't predict when students are going to really listen to hang that on. and hang on to it and hang come on. to you years later and be like, you really changed something for me. And you may not remember what you did, but they, they would remember it um, for, a certain, um, for a certain thing you did for them. So we just never know. That's why it's important to keep doing this work. I'm so appreciative of you all being here and listening um, to me and inviting me because it really is something I care about. Doing the same for my students that my teachers did for me in college to get me thinking, yeah, you can be a professor. You can be something very different from what your parents thought you could be or from what you thought you could be. Um, so. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.